listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. So we're going to transition now into our time of scripture reading. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we honor God's word and um, prepare our hearts for Chris's message today. Uh, I'm reading out of Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 32 through 41. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, what you just heard were parts of Peter's first sermon. Uh, in fact, you might think of it as like the first Christian sermon ever preached, which I think is really cool. Um, this is one of the great sermons in church history. Uh, there have been many great preachers throughout church history. Uh, this one guy, John Chrysostom in the fourth century, uh, his nickname was Golden Mouth because like his words were just like pure gold. Um, George Whitfield in the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin said that his voice was so loud that he could speak to a crowd of 30,000 people. Imagine that, like without a microphone, because that was a long time ago. Um, Jonathan Edwards, another one of the great preachers in church history, was a guy who... Uh, could bring people to tears, could make people pass out. Like, that's kind of crazy. Um, today, you get me, who's none, <laughs> not like any of those people. Um, I'm Chris Wozniki. I am one of the elders here at Story City. And today, we get to launch a new sort of like mini-series. Um, it's a continuation of like the larger theme that we've been covering this fall. So this fall, uh, we started this, uh, this larger series of being equipped for depth and restoration. And we've been thinking a little bit about how God has a call on our lives. And he doesn't just like give us a call, right? He doesn't say just like go and do this. Um, he equips us to live out that call. And it starts with him uh, equipping us to pursue him through Sabbath, through silence, through meditating in God's word, stuff like that. Right? That's how he equips us to pursue him. But I'm not going to lie, this little mini-series that we're about to start, um, I'm excited about because we get to cover something that kind of gets a little bit overlooked. Um, it's how the Holy Spirit equips us to live out that depth and restoration in the lives of other people. 
right? So if we just looked at how uh, our own lives can grow in depth and restoration, now we're going to look at how God equips us to do that for others. Uh, And we're going to travel back in time about like 2,000-ish or so years um, and take a look at how God equipped his people to be agents of restoration in the lives of others. And that was something that Jesus actually promised was going to happen, right? After his resurrection, Jesus ascended back to the Father, but before he did that, he told his disciples to wait. What did he tell them to wait for? He said, wait for the Father's promise. He says, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Father's promise. You know, the Father's promise. God the Father makes a promise. You know it has to be good. Um, I travel for work quite a bit. And um, whenever I go, my kids always ask me, what are you going to bring me when you come back? Right? They're not like, oh, how long are you going to be gone? Like, we're going to miss you, Daddy. It's like, what are you going to bring me when you come back? Um, and I usually say, I promise I'll bring something good. This Friday morning, I just came back into town, and they ran to give me a hug first thing in the morning. Um, so that was nice. But then the second thing was, Dad, what did you bring me? Um, they were ecstatic to see what I got them because they know that I had promised them a gift. And they know that when Dad promises a gift, 85% of the times, it's really good. Um, but when God promises a gift, like you know it's going to be good 100% of the time. So these disciples, they're waiting for this gift. Right? They're waiting to see how God ends up keeping this promise that he told them he was going to give them. You know, Jesus said, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. That's the promise. And in the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at what that promise meant for the early church and what that means for us. So let me go ahead and pray before we open up our Bibles to see what the Lord has for us this morning. Jesus, we thank you um, <clears throat> for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness to us, that you um, love teaching us, God, that you love speaking to us and encouraging us. You love to help us grow uh, in you and um, as followers of you. Lord, I pray this morning as we open up your word uh, that you would speak, that we would have ears to listen and hands to act upon what you've called us to do. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 2. Um, should be pretty easy to pull up on your phone or in a physical Bible. If you don't have a Bible or a phone, um, it's up on the screen. So I'm guessing most people probably at least have a phone. So uh, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1. Starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. So it's the day of Pentecost, um, which for Jews back then was this really big festival. Uh, In fact, Jews from like all around the world would come to celebrate this thing. Uh, Think Thanksgiving, right? Like everybody comes into town to visit. So it was this festival. What was it celebrating? Well, it was celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest. First fruit of the wheat harvest. Um, you might be thinking, like, you're going to throw a party <laughs> over, like, some wheat? Um, if you're gluten-free, that's a terrible type of party. Um, but it was actually really important back then, right? Because um, wheat, what do you make out of wheat? Does anybody know what you make out of wheat? You make all kinds of things. But what's one thing that people make? Bread, yes, you make bread. Um, wheat's important because you make bread. And no bread back then meant no food. And no food 
not just back then, but always means no life, right? So in Pentecost, you're celebrating that God has provided for you what you need for life, the basic sustenance of life. So that's one thing they're celebrating. The other thing that they're celebrating is that at Pentecost, that's when God gave Israel the law at Sinai. At Sinai, God gives them the law. And the law is this external thing which directs them how to live according to God's way. It also gives them an identity, sets them apart from everybody around them, marks them off as God's people. So that's what's going on at Pentecost. You got the wheat party and the law. Right, so Jesus' followers are all in this one place. They're probably praying, they're worshiping, maybe they're telling some stories about what Jesus did in their lives. And then this happens, verse two. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Right, this huge wind blows through the house. And it's cool, because if you're a Jew who's reading this story back then, you know what that means. You know, in the Old Testament, wind often represents God's spirit. So when the wind blows, you know God's spirit is coming through. And there's this cool prophecy in Ezekiel that was probably in their minds as it was happening. Um, You know, back in the Old Testament, there was this prophet named Ezekiel, and God gave him this vision. In this vision, it's like a valley of dry, just bones. I wasn't say dead bones, but I guess... You can assume they're bones. They're dead if they're just bones. Um, so, so there's this valley of like dead bones, just no life at all. And the wind blows. And it's supposed to be God's breath blowing through this valley. And God breathes life into these bones. And these bones start to get flesh and they start to come to life. And not like a creepy zombie thing, but like a actual like life life. Um, this is what it says in Ezekiel 37. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. So the spirit comes and blows through this house. Verse three, they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the spirit enabled them. So once again, what's happening in this room is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So these tongues of fire, they come and rest on the people. And to tell you the truth, I have no idea what that looks like. Um, If I saw like fire on everybody's head, I would think like, what did I eat that's like making me trip out? Um, They don't freak out because they know what it means. They remember what happened at Sinai. Remember, Pentecost is a festival about what happened at Sinai, right? God met them there. And what happens at Sinai is that God rests upon his people as a pillar of fire. God uses this to symbolize that he's with them and that his presence is among them. Exodus 19 says this, uh, verse 18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. So just as a side note, like this is why reading the Old Testament is important. Um, let me explain. So we're watching Ahsoka. Is anybody watching that? Does anybody know what that is? 
Okay, if you don't, it's a, it's a Star Wars show. Um, for those of you who aren't nerds, it's a Star Wars show that calls back to some older cartoons. Um, one recent episode plays a lot with like sounds and colors, and there are callbacks to certain events that happened uh, in the cartoon. I'm gonna sound like an idiot talking about, I'm watching this cartoon. Um, so, like in a cartoon in the past, right? And I don't wanna give like more details because those are spoilers, um, but there's this like rich, Imagery in the new stuff that you don't get the depth and significance of if you don't know the old stuff, right? And that's how the Old Testament works. Like, if you don't read the Old Testament, like, you'll still understand, like, what's going on in the New Testament, but you won't really catch the depth of the significance of, like, the fire, of the wind, of Pentecost. So the point is, read your Old Testament. That's not the main point, but that is one of the points. Um, So God's presence is with believers in this really tangible way. And what ends up happening is that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. God's presence is not just like among them, but it's actually in them. And they start to speak in tongues. And you probably want to know what's going on here, what that means. Um, We'll get back to that. But verse 5 says this. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, Devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and then he goes on and on and on, listing a bunch of different places, people from all over. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. So as I said, Pentecost was this large celebration where Jews from all over were coming into town. Again, think of it as like Thanksgiving. It's LAX, right? Just traffic, everybody, everywhere. People are coming into town. The same thing is going on here. Jews and Gentiles who follow God are coming into town for this celebration and they hear this noise, a loud rushing wind and it catches their attention and then they hear some people babbling. Others hear people speaking in their own language. The ones who hear them babbling make fun of them and say, oh, these people must be drunk. Others are amazed because they hear them worshiping God in their own languages and Acts says that they were declaring the wonders of God. What were they declaring? I'm, I'm, glass, I'm guessing they're talking about how amazing Jesus was, how he's king, how he's resurrected, how he's in glory, all these things. And then the crowd asks, what does this mean? Like, what is all this, the sound, the fire, the babbling, what does all this mean? Uh, a little tangent, gift of tongues for a second. Um, there's this discussion in this passage whether they're speaking like different languages or whether it's incomprehensible speech. Like people will debate like, what's actually going on in this, this passage? It seems to me, this is my opinion as I read it, um, that some, well this is what it says, some are hearing incoherent speech and some are hearing God's praises being declared. Right, two different groups hearing two different things. And this is my opinion, take it with a grain of salt. The, dis, the people who were following Jesus or who were going to follow Jesus. Take it back a second. The disciples were in fact saying incomprehensible things. 
right? They were not speaking a regular language. But God enabled those with soft hearts to understand what they were saying, and God allowed those with hard hearts to just hear babbling. Isaiah says, there will be people who are ever hearing but not understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving because of their hard hearts. That's my conjecture about what's going on here. So Peter steps in and he comes to their defense, right? He says, okay, like, you think they're drunk, but it's only 9 a.m. Like, literally, he says that uh, it's only 9 in the morning. It's like they didn't have breakfast mimosas, like, back then. Like, it's only 9 a.m. Nobody's drinking. Um, And to tell you the truth, like, that makes me wonder, like, what these people were thinking. You know, like, you don't get drunk and start speaking, like, fluently in some other language. Like, that doesn't happen. You don't, like, all of a sudden start speaking in German or, like, Cantonese if you've never spoken it just because you're drunk. Um, On top of that, like, why would you think they're drunk? Like, all of a sudden, people are quoting the Old Testament at length. Like, not just the popular verses, like, the Lord is my shepherd or, like, whatever. They're quoting Joel. They're quoting Samuel, right? When When you get drunk, you don't just, like, all of a sudden start making more sense than, I mean, maybe some people make more sense than they normally do. Uh, But you don't like deliver a jaw-dropping sermon and one of the greatest speeches of all times, right? Like you don't make sense. Okay, so the point is these people are not drunk, he says. Peter says that it was prophesied that this would happen in the Old Testament. Joel prophesied that God would come as king. Joel prophesied that God was gonna release his spirit. And God always keeps his promises, not just in Joel, but in the entire Old Testament. Right? God makes two big promises. Here's the first one. Jesus is the promised king. It's the first promise that God makes to us. You know, uh, this promise actually begins at creation. You know, God, he's good and he's loving and he wants to share his love. So what he does is that he creates He creates all things and he creates humanity. And he places human beings in this garden. And God says, you are in charge. I'm still the king, but I want you to take care of all of this for me. And as you know, humans tried to make their own way. They thought they were better than God. They thought they could rule better than him. They did what they want and they set themselves up over God and they fall. So in order to protect them, God kicks them out of the garden and he, re, he enacts this rescue plan. And the plan was to restore this broken relationship and reestablish God's rule, God's reign, his kingdom. So what needed to happen is that this rift between God and human beings needed to be healed. God's kingly rule needed to be reestablished. And that was something only God could do. And at the same time, it was only something that humans had to do because they were responsible. They were guilty for it. So in comes Jesus, fully God, fully man, God incarnate, and he comes and he teaches about the kingdom. He preaches about what it looks like to live in it, um, what it looks like to have that as your values, and he does miracles, and he casts out demons, and he proves that he's the rightful king, even though he's just some guy from Galilee. Think of like Lord of the Rings, right? This is like Aragorn, who's the rightful king, coming out of nowhere, and just ruling in full power at the end. But nobody gets that in the middle of the whole three movies or three books or whatever. So Jesus, he, he reestablishes God's reign and he heals this broken relationship. When he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins, our sins are taken away and we get his righteousness. And because 
the king gives us this gift of righteousness. Now he gives us something else. Acts 2.32 says this. God has raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. God raised Jesus from the grave, exalts him to the right hand of the throne, means that he's ruling. He's ruling from heaven. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. So in other words, God made Jesus Christ Lord and King over all things so that all things could fall under him. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then he receives the promised spirit, which he pours out for us. So that's the good news, right? He gives us salvation. He gives us righteousness. He also gives us his spirit. That's the second promise that God makes. The Holy Spirit is the promised gift. The Holy Spirit is the promised gift. Um, so here's, here's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is not just an add-on. It's not just like an added bonus, like fringe benefits. Um, think of it like w- your company might like give you a free gym pass as like a benefit to working there. Um, you might get free lunch on Fridays, the last Friday of the month. You know, these are like little, little fun little extras, little bonuses. Um, that's not how this Holy Spirit is. He's not just like a fun little extra, a fun little bonus. The Holy Spirit is the point, right? It's what God has been wanting to give all along. And that sounds like a bold claim to say like the Holy Spirit is the point. Why would I say that the Holy Spirit is a point? Well, if you look at the story of scripture, all along God has desired an intimate, close relationship with his people. You see this in the Old Testament where God is constantly saying, you will be my people and I'll be your God. God desires this deep bond with his people, but God's holy, right? And he can't have sin in his presence. So through the Old Testament, the best that could happen was that God could dwell among his people as a pillar of fire, as a cloud, right? But always at a distance, right? There's always this buffer of the law, this buffer of religious rituals. And God and humans couldn't have intimate relationship until sin was taken care of. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took care of our sins. He paid that price. He took the penalty so that we could have intimacy with God. And that kind of intimacy is something that's hard to imagine. Like a finite human being sharing intimacy with an infinite, transcendent God. It's hard to understand. But Paul says it's like marriage. It's like in marriage there's this deep bond that can only be described as union. Two becoming one flesh. That's how scripture speaks of that. And that's how we're united to Christ. The Holy Spirit cleaves us to Christ because we're in Christ. 
Right? And because we're in Christ, we're brought into this relationship of the Trinity. Right? The Holy Spirit is a big gift because the Spirit is the way that we're brought into this loving relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Father loving the Son and the Spirit sharing in that love and bringing us and drawing us into that. So the Holy Spirit is the promised gift, but the Spirit also gives gifts. He gives us spiritual gifts. And here's the main idea for this morning, which tags on to our series, is that the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a witness to Jesus. Holy Spirit empowers you to be a witness to Jesus. He gives you gifts so that you can point to Jesus the King. He leads you and guides you to witness to Christ. You just read, we just read about this, right? Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel, was empowered to prophesy that the King would come, save the repentant, and pour out the Spirit. That's Jesus. That's the answer to that prophecy. David was empowered to prophesy that his descendant would rule and not taste death. That's Jesus, right? The crowds are empowered to speak in tongues the mighty gifts and deeds of God. What is that? That's Jesus. Peter is empowered to witness to Jesus and he preaches this sermon and absolutely kills it and 3,000 people get saved, right? That's, that's how, what happens. That's how the Spirit works. And the Spirit empowers you to be a witness to Jesus. And the truth is that you are empowered to be a witness to, to talk about what he has done for you. You're empowered to point to him, to make him famous. So the question is, how is God gonna release that power through you? How do we put ourselves in a position to be used by God, to be empowered? The first thing is that you must surrender yourself to him. You must surrender yourself to him. You have to decide that he's actually Lord, that he's actually king of your life, not just in general as an idea, but your life. If you don't do that, you don't even get the Holy Spirit. You only get the Spirit when you confess your sins to him and confess your allegiance to the king and you lay down your will before him and decide to follow him wholeheartedly. You have to examine your life and you have to ask yourselves, like, are there areas in my life that I'm holding on to and not giving over to him? Are there areas where I've just wanted to keep control, where I've felt like I need to be king of my own life instead of letting him be king? That's what it looks like to surrender. And once you've surrendered, then you need to trust him. This is the second point, or the fourth point, or the fifth point. It's a lot of points. Trust him to lead you and teach you what to say. Trust him to lead you and teach you what to say. You know, the cool thing about the Spirit is that the Spirit is all about Jesus' glory. And the Spirit desperately wants to glorify Jesus and point people to him. So if you let him do that through you, he's gladly gonna do that. He's gladly gonna teach you how to do that. Right? The Spirit is gonna lead you, put you in the right situations, in the right places, open your eyes to see the right things, so that you'll see what God is up to. Right? You don't have to like figure up some like master plan to put yourself in the right spot and like to say the right things and to do all that. Like all you have to do is like follow the Spirit's leading. And the Spirit's gonna teach you what to say. When you run out of words, when you don't know what to say, you can trust that the Holy Spirit is gonna guide you to say the right things. Just as the Spirit gave Peter the right words to preach this sermon, the Spirit can give you power to speak.
Maybe the Spirit's gonna ask you or lead you to pray for someone. Maybe the Spirit is gonna give you special insight into what's going on with that person. Let me give you an example. Um, Several years ago when I was leading uh, a college ministry, I was at a conference in Texas. And uh, as I stood there during the worship sessioning, just worshiping, that's what you do in a worship session, and praying and stuff, um, I felt like I had this like impression, like I needed to do something, that I should reach out to one of my volunteer leaders and just tell him that like I was thankful for what I see the Lord was doing in him, that I'm grateful for what he brings to the team and that the Lord honors that. Right, nothing weird, just like I need to like reach out and like thank this guy and encourage him. Um, so I think, should I just wait until this like session is done and like reach out? Just like not like make a whole thing where I'm like walking out of the room? Um, or should I just do it now? I thought to myself, you know what? Like if I'm feeling this right now, I should probably just go do it. So I step out and I reach out to him. And guess what he was doing back in California at that very moment? He was sitting in his car praying, praying about whether he was even helpful to the ministry. Was that a coincidence? I mean, some would say maybe. I mean, I guess. If I would have waited, would he have still been encouraged? Yeah, absolutely. But how much more powerful was it that his prayer was answered right at that moment when he was praying? And I'm confident that that was the leading of the Spirit to speak encouragement just at the right time. And it's pretty simple, right? It's not spooky, it's not weird. As I like to say sometimes, it's just supernaturally natural. Spirit likes to do fun things like that. Um, Simple things like that. Sometimes they're more jaw-dropping. For example, Spirit might give you something very specific to say to somebody. Like, I just felt like, oh, I need to encourage this guy. But no, he might give you something super specific. Uh, there's this older preacher, Graham Cook, um, who, who tells a story of when he was on a plane, right? And he's sitting next to this guy who looks really mean. Um, and he strikes up a conversation with him, which I would have hated because I hate people talking to me on planes. I just want to like put my headphones on, read, watch some movies. Uh, but he strikes up a conversation with this guy, and he finds out that this guy hates Christians. Um, so Graham is not bold, and he says, oh, I'm just going to leave this guy alone. Um, but then as he's like sitting there, like he feels like God is giving him a picture for this guy. Um, God gives him a picture of a three-legged dog. And Graham is like, oh my gosh, like, you want me to say this to this guy? Like, he's going to think I'm an idiot. He hates Christians. He's going to think I'm crazy. He might even go off on me. But Graham follows this, the Spirit's leading, and he says to this guy, like, I don't know if this means anything to you, but God gave me a picture of a three-legged dog. How's that, how's that going to land, right? Um, and the guy, like, breaks down crying. And he, he bursts out about how he used to have a three-legged dog and how he prayed for God to heal it when it got sick and that he would follow him if he healed the dog. But God did not heal the dog and the dog died. And eventually, that became one domino in a series of dominoes which led him to the point where he was hating God. Um, and that little just like initiative allowed Graham to start up a conversation about God with the guy. Did the guy get saved on that plane? No. Is that maybe one piece of that guy's story that might eventually lead to something? I pray that that, that's the case. 
But what I do know, I don't know if he got saved or not eventually, but what I do know is that the Spirit prompted Graham to act and to speak and to point to Jesus. It doesn't always have to be spectacular to be Spirit-led. The good news is that if you're a Christian, you're empowered to do normal and not so normal things. You've received the Spirit and that's all you need to witness to Jesus. Once you give up control, just watch how he's gonna use that. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna take a deeper look at how specifically God equips us to be agents of restoration and the different kinds of gifts that he gives each one of us so that we can point to Jesus, the one who actually brings restoration. And the thing I want you to remember is that if you have put your faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a witness to him. All right? I know maybe not everybody's there at this point. Maybe you're still stuck like on the first promise that Jesus is the king that, owe, that we owe our allegiance to, that Jesus is the transcendent God in flesh, and that this God desires to dwell with you. Like, maybe you're stuck there. Maybe you want to know about this God. Right? Peter says that the first step to knowing this God is to repent and be baptized. To repent simply means to change directions. If you're going in one direction, you turn around and you go the other way. It means to change your allegiance back to yourself being king, to Jesus being king. To be baptized means, uh, as a symbol to us dying to our old way of life and rising up with Christ. It means that you're forever identified with him in his death and resurrection. So if you want to repent and change allegiances, he says, be baptized. Be publicly identified with Christ. Um, if that's something that's on your mind, I'd invite you to talk to Samir, to me, or one of the elders here uh, at the church. And if you've already put your faith in Christ and been united to him by the Spirit, there's another action that the Lord gives us. That's communion. Communion is a way that we remember his death for us. But it's also a way that we experience his presence. You know, before he left, Jesus promised to his disciples that he's gonna be with us until the end of the age. And you might think like, how is he with us? Like, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well, he's with us by his Holy Spirit. He's with us till the end of the age by his Spirit. He's present with us. And when we take communion, we get to remember the fact that he died so that he could be with us. That when we go and take the elements of communion, we remember that he's with us, feeding us spiritually, nourishing us, encouraging us, giving us life. So as we uh, wrap things up and go into communion, um, I would encourage those of you who are disciples of Christ to go and partake. Um, if you haven't yet decided to follow Jesus, I'd encourage you just to hold back um, and wait until you've made a decision to follow him. But I'm gonna go ahead and pray uh, and we're gonna go celebrate the meal that God has given us to remember his presence. Jesus, uh, we, we thank you that you're with us, God. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are present with us in such an intimate way. I pray that um, as we remember your death and resurrection, that that would give us the strength, the nourishment to proceed and be faithful disciples of you faithful agents of restoration who use the gifts that you've given us to bless others and to point others to you.
We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.